Political writer Seth Richardson joins us a day early because he's heading off to tropical Hawaii after today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Seth. Before he heads out, Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston, it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. You all all ready to go, Seth? I am I'm, I'm very excited to go. It's getting colder here, so I'm uh, going to soak in some sunshine and some pretty cool history. Hawaii has a very interesting historical background that I would recommend everyone look into. Yeah, I, I was there for a honeymoon a long time ago. I am jealous. It's uh, the perfect climate uh, pretty much year-round. I hope you have a good time. Let's get going. We know the new congressional districts approved by Ohio Republicans have gerrymandering issues, but might they also face challenges based on how they deal with race issues? Seth, you put together a story late last week that looked at this element. This used to be something that was front and center when congressional districts are being made, but it's almost an afterthought this time because of how slanted the Republicans have made the districts toward their party. What did your story find? Well, I wanted to look at where, uh, you know, the kind of cracking and packing, particularly of black voters, but really of minority communities all over the state, because uh, there just seemed to be some some very weird ways the maps were drawn. And, you know, I uh, I guess my suspicions were somewhat confirmed when I took a look at it. There are definitely some areas around the state, um, especially around the three biggest cities in the state, right? Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, where you see um, some cracking and packing of uh, black voters, uh, Hispanic voters, Asian American Pacific Islander voters. And, um, you know, Republicans say that that's not deliberate because they didn't use racial data when they did this. Um, And it just kind of happened by uh, happenstance. But uh, there are a couple of a couple of areas that are, you know, fairly um, (laughs) uh, front and center. You can see it. It's just plain as day. Right. You just look at it and, it you know, the, the smell test is there. So. Um, you know, to go into a couple of the areas that I looked at, you know, one is in Cuyahoga County, right? And we know that, uh, you know, Cuyahoga County is, you know, largely packed pretty much all of the, uh, the black voters into that 11th congressional district, but they actually cracked a couple of places as well. A couple of communities up here, such as Oakwood probably being, you know, among the ones that, uh, detractors have called the most egregious where this majority black community has been split in half, essentially to make way for uh, Dave Joyce's Republican district to go over and capture some of the, you know, independence area, that that sort of stuff, uh, even like Parma, that kind of area, um, sort of using that as a vote sink. So that's, that's up here. Um, you look at Hamilton County down in Cincinnati, and I think that is where, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I think there could be some problems there potentially because what you what you saw, what they did in Hamilton County is, the city of Cincinnati is kept whole, right? Which is, you know, part of part of one of the goals of the redistricting uh, reforms that were passed. But what Republicans did was they completely segmented off the black population of those northern suburbs and put them into a heavily Republican, majority white district. Um, all that while they, they take that Cincinnati district and gerrymander it up to Warren County, which is majority white. These sorts of lawsuits are really difficult to, you know, kind of tell, hey, is, you know, is there a Voting Rights Act issue here or not? And we can get into that if you want. But, um, you know, just at face value, I think you can kind of see certain areas where they, they definitely, um, you know, split up black and minority voter populations. It's interesting that 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 has not been front and center in the discussions, whereas 
you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that was a big discussion point when districts are being redrawn, you know, partly, and we'll be talking about this later, it's because the Republicans have gerrymandered worse than they did before voters went to the polls to stop gerrymandering. And that's, that's taken all the oxygen out of the discussion. But, but it, it will be interesting to see if we, especially with the congressional districts now, we see a whole new line of attack in the courts. I mean, we, we, it, it just seems like this is ripe for it. So good piece. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland police and the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority police are getting a bunch of money from the federal government to hire police officers. But will they be able to find candidates for those jobs? Laura, in Cleveland, one of the biggest difficulties they have is getting enough officers into academies to just replenish the ranks that exist. So now they get this money to hire a bunch of additional police officers. Can they do it? Well, that's a really good question. This is $4.25 million from the Federal Department of Justice, their Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, uh, known as COPS, and it's a hiring program. The CPD, the Cleveland Police Department, is going to get the bulk of it, $3.75 million, while CMHA for the Housing Authority will receive about $500,000. That breaks down to $125,000 per officer. And that covers about 75% of an officer's salary and benefits for 36 months. And then those law enforcement agencies have to commit to keeping the officers for at least another year. But you're right. This is really tough. Right now, there are 1,472 officers employed in Cleveland Police Department, 55 in the academy. And the city is budgeted for 1,640 officers. So we're still short, you know, more than 100. And the, the budget is there for them in the city already. So just throwing money at the problem is not going to fix it. Yeah, that's what struck me is that, that for now, it's not a money problem. It's much more a candidate problem. The city has not built a pipeline from the school system to get people to want to be officers in the neighborhoods they grew up in, which would be helpful for community relations. So I'm sure the city is grateful for the money. It's just how do you do it? There have been years when they've had five different classes go through the police academy and that's just to stay with even with retirements and resignations and everything else it's a, it's an interesting quandary and i guess cmha is is in need of extra officers too there's been quite a bit of crime and violence in cleveland housing projects and this should go a long way to helping them bring that under control i i hope so i mean that's where the shooting was of arthur keith last year uh, but this is part of a national push from the DOJ. They announced $139 million in grants to 183 law enforcement agencies. That's going to help hire 1,066 full-time officers. But you're right. I mean, this is just for salaries. I think there must be, you know, there's there's an issue here between the community and police and why people don't want to become police officers. And until that's addressed, I don't know that just having money in the budget is going to fix it there obviously there's a marketing problem there's a relationship problem and that needs to be solved i think before we're really going to see droves of people signing up for the academy well and of course you brought up arthur keith but he was a victim of police gun violence a police officer shot and killed him so that's not that the police were the problem there although that's what i meant that's that's sorry if i didn't make that clear but obviously so I could see why they're, you know, having trouble recruiting new people, too. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Who are the people behind the move to provide halal Thanksgiving meals to all of the Afghan refugees who have recently come to Cleveland? Lisa, you get the good news story of the day. We're trying to be a welcoming community to Afghan refugees. I do, and this is such a war- heartwarming story. The idea came from, actually, the idea came from the daughter of Navy veteran Ken Harbaugh, who was a one-time Democratic congressional candidate back in 2018. His daughter, Katie... Uh, had the idea after watching how they were struggling. Refugees were struggling back in Afghan, trying to get to America and struggling once they came to America. So she came up with the idea and her father ran with it. So what they're going to do is they're going to try and feed about uh, 200 Afghan families that have arrived here in in Cleveland area. Uh, They're going to have the food prepared by Assad's Bakery and Kefaya's Kitchen on the west side here of Cleveland. And of course, and some Afghan moms are going to be chipping in too and helping with the, uh, the cooking of these halal menus. And this is wonderful too, because halal is, is like the Jewish kosher. The food is prepared, you know, with strict religious, you know, guidelines. And so this is a way for them to feel at home and get food that they, you know, recognize from their homeland. So they're, uh, they're going to have about 200 volunteers driving around and delivering these meals to about 200 families. And in these meals, they're going to include thank you notes. I really like this. In their native Pashto or Dari language, just saying we're grateful for your assistance to the U.S. military while we were in Afghan. Welcome to Cleveland, and we're glad to have you here. So this is a wonderful story. They've raised about $2,800 so far. They're seeking about $500 more in additional donations. You can find the link in our Cleveland.com story today uh, if you want, because there's no tiny URL, so I can't just spout off the URL. But they're also looking for donations to help them through the rest of the holidays season. And this is a reminder that the refugees who came here were were fleeing because they largely had been helpful to the American effort there. And and so they they would have been targeted or could have been targeted if they stayed in their own country. So it's really a wonderful gesture to say thank you. So very, uh, very cool story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How have Ohio Republicans thumbed their noses at Max Miller, a candidate for Congress endorsed by former President Donald Trump? Seth, this is another one of our redistricting stories. And who knew that as the Republicans were trying to suck up as many districts as they could, they would stick it to a guy that their party leader has endorsed? It's not something that we've uh, jumped into too terribly much, but yeah, you know, when you look at these maps and the ones that they've uh, drawn and now that have been approved by the governor, right? Um, you know, Max Miller jumped into the old 16th congressional district uh, that is currently represented by Anthony Gonzalez. That district is really no more, and it now is actually a slightly Democratic-leaning district, whereas. You know, if he had won the primary, and it looked like he would have won the primary since, you know, Anthony Gonzalez dropped out and don't know anybody else who's jumping in, um, especially with a Trump endorsement, you know, kind of already in that race. Um, But that district becomes a lot harder for a real, you know, kind of pro-Trump, you know, sort of MAGA-type Republican to win because of the makeup of the district, which includes Akron, uh, you know, kind of the Rocky River over to Avon area, like the, uh, basically Rocky River over to the uh, Cuyahoga County line. And, um, you know, sure, it, it does have some conservative, like stronghold areas like Strongsville, but you have to imagine that that, you know, that district didn't really 
like as it's drawn now, didn't really vote for Donald Trump. I mean, sure, it does include those Republican areas, but it makes it much more difficult for um, a kind of uh, a Trump ideologue of sorts to really just sort of go in there and be like, I'm the Trump candidate, you know, gung ho kind of thing. And um, it, it is a little surprising, but I think you can see that the priorities of the Republicans in Ohio were very clearly to you know, kind of draw safer seats for their own incumbents. They weren't really concerned with, you know, what Donald Trump was doing or what anybody else was doing to try to come in. It would be nice if you had a district that would bubble up kind of a centrist Republican. He, Max Miller, is cut very much from the cloth of the Josh Mandel, Jim Renacci, Jim Jordan, kind of ridiculous nonsense. And they send out their emails all week long touting just nonsense so this is nice this this means that that's not a fait accompli which we all thought it would be uh just a little bit surprising that the republicans would do that they had to do something though because we have one fewer district and with gonzalez stepping away it makes it easy to manipulate that one so that you can protect all the others yeah and i'm 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 interested to see you know right now um you know, we already have a Democrat who jumped into the race, right? A guy named Matthew Deemer of Bay Village. He's a, you know, podcast producer who's kind of known locally. And, you know, when I, I when I first heard that he was running that, you know, it seemed um, possibly the fool's errand because we didn't know how the districts were going to be drawn, right? We just didn't know, hey, are they going to keep this kind of a Republican area, which, again, they did include some very Republican areas, Strongsville, Medina County, those sorts of places. But now all of a sudden, Deemer can actually make the case that, hey, this is not only a winnable district, this is a district that, according to recent trends, kind of leans, you know, a little Democratic in a way. So I will be intrigued to see who jumps into that race. I think everybody is kind of speculating that maybe Amelia Sykes makes a go at it because it does include a, a wholly contained Akron now. But I, I think you are going to have um, some some people take a pretty serious look at that because now it's uh, a winnable district for Democrats. And maybe you'll get an Anthony Gonzalez-type Republican who stands up thinking that they can win it. It's, it's an interesting mm. district in a state that doesn't have many. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is Cuyahoga County's Division of Children and Family Services doing to make sure all the kids in foster care have presents to open on Christmas morning? Laura, it's not even Thanksgiving, but the county's talking about Christmas. Well, you got to prepare. You got to be able to buy the gifts. And this is when kids are starting to think about writing to Santa and asking for their wish list. I mean, the catalogs have been coming hot and heavy in my house. But the county's Division of Children and Family Services is asking community to donate the gifts for Hope for the Holidays program. That provides presidents to more than 4,000 kids and teens in foster care this year. And they'd also like people to adopt one of 200 kinship families through their adoption. Adopt a family program. The target wish list includes board games, electronics, Legos, crafts, movies, and toys. The DCFS has also requested more black dolls because studies have indicated that doll play can increase self-esteem and ideals of beauty in children. So a whole list of things that you could get for a kid who make sure they have a nice Christmas. And where do they go? How do they, they do it? They can order gifts online and have them shipped to Hope for the Holidays, which is 3955 Euclid Avenue, or they can drop off the, the purchases on the deadline date of December 1st. So it seems early, but they do have to get these and make sure they all go to the right families, and that takes a lot of organization. And then the families get the gifts during a drive through event on December 11th. 
All right, I'm going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to, and I feel bad about that, but not really. How many <laughs> How many kids do we have in foster care in Cuyahoga County? I don't know the exact number right now. Normally, it's hovered around 2,000 in the past, so I, I can check that and try and get back to you. But it's a lot of presents is what it, the, the it, point is. It's They need thousands of presents to take care of thousands of children. Absolutely. I mean... These kids, they probably have all asked, you know, for one or two very specific items on their list, and I hope that they can get them. Do, okay. I, I have a question real quick. I don't know if you know the answer to it, but uh, can someone like, you know, myself, say, give his old Lego sets, or do these need to be like new gifts that are purchased? I think these are specifically new gifts, although I, I know that the office of DCFS does take um, use stuffed animals that they give to kids uh, who come there unexpectedly and they probably have a need for Legos and stuff like that too because some of the times the kids end up at the office um, on Euclid Avenue. Sometimes parents are waiting a long time in the waiting room. I don't know how COVID has changed all of that. It's been a couple of years since I've been in that um, Hunter building, but we could definitely find out and let people know where they can give give used gifts. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, I'm going to switch it up. The lawsuit has been filed. The congressional districts are under fire before the Ohio Supreme Court. Who's filed it and what are they claiming? And let's point out right up front, this is not a surprise. (laughs) Not a surprise at all, especially when we had a Democratic operative attorney say, we are going to sue just the other day. So this latest suit was filed Monday by the National Redistricting Action Fund, which is headed up by Eric Holder, the former U.S. Attorney General. Uh, it, It went straight to the Supreme Court. They say that what we've heard, this is the litany that we're hearing. It violates the Ohio Constitution because it it had it passed with a lack of bipartisan support and it unduly benefited one party and incumbents over another. And in, in when talking about the suit, they said, you know, this seeks to turn back the clock to 2018 when the state was free to gerrymander. And of course, this was before, before Ohio voters overwhelmingly demanded, you know, fairer districts in, in a vote. And they're focusing on Hamilton County. We were just talking about that earlier, how Hamilton County, Cincinnati was split into three districts, all GOP leaning, and also Summit County, just south of us. The um, Akron Democratic suburbs were combined with GOP districts to the south. So they are focusing, as the other suits are focusing on these particular counties as well. And the three suits that have been filed already are looking to have their hearings before the Supreme Court on December 8th. You know, the audience for this podcast has grown considerably over the last four to five weeks. And so we're hearing from a lot more listeners. And I heard from one overnight saying, you know, you're talking a lot about what a fair district is without saying it. So could you discuss that a little bit? And my answer is what the voters went and said they wanted a a districts that are proportional to the history of Ohio voting, which would be a much closer number than what they're doing, more like 55, 60 percent Republican, uh, as opposed to the ridiculous numbers they have now. What, what, what is going to be interesting to me in these lawsuits, and it'd be interesting to talk about this a little bit, the, the Supreme Court, based on the, the constitutional amendment, can't redraw them. They can send them back. But if the Supreme Court sent them back and said, hey, you were told by the voters to make this proportional to the vote. You know what that is. Do it. And they don't do it again. I wonder, could the Supreme Court hold them in contempt? I mean, could the Supreme Court put Huffman and Cup, the House Speaker and the Senate President, 
behind bars until they do what the voters demanded that they do. There's got to be a hammer here. They, they're completely violating the will of the voters. They're, they're violating the Constitution. They're basically breaking the law. And the court, if it's sane, is going to call them on it and say, you didn't even try to do this right. But if they don't have a hammer, like being able to say, you're now in contempt of court because you're refusing to do what the Constitution says, I'm not sure they do. And I'm not sure that they've really signaled uh, any kind of, you know, tendency to do that. And of course, you know, we had the whole flap with the uh, Justice Pat DeWine not recusing himself on this case. So that kind of tainted the process, you know, at the Supreme Court level in my mind already. But yeah, I, I hope they do. But like I said, I haven't seen any signals to that effect just yet. Wouldn't it be great if Justice Pat DeWine signed an order that held his father in contempt and put him behind bars? Don't think that's going to happen. That guy should not be sitting on the case. It's a travesty of the justice system that he's still there. Anyway, interesting. We knew the suit would come. Now there'll be depositions and they'll have to rush, though, because, Seth, when is the filing deadline right now for the primary? Uh, The filing deadline, excuse me, the filing deadline is uh, the end of February, but the redistricting plan that they passed actually pushes that a little bit into March to uh, give people some more time to collect signatures and whatnot. So it'll be the beginning of March. I'm not sure the exact date. Yeah, I know. But let's face it. If you look at the timeline of the legislative district lawsuits, that's taken two months. To, it'll take more than two months to get the December 8th when they finally have their hearing. So if we start the clock ticking now for two months, we're talking late January before it even comes before the Supreme Court for a hearing. I would expect this would have to be expedited, right? Oh, I'm sure. There, there have been cases in the past, not necessarily in Ohio, where um, you have a court who you know, uh, basically the state, like the state and politicians will move forward with kind of the current districts at play, even while there's a court challenge going on that can really throw some chaos into the whole system. But yeah, I assume this is going to get expedited pretty quickly so that they can figure it out. Yeah. If they just done their jobs, we wouldn't be in this, this lurch, but none of them did their jobs. Every one of them, it's a hundred percent failure to do what they're supposed to do by the deadlines they're supposed to do it. It's been a very, very bad situation. You keep waiting. When does the ballot initiative start to take the whole process away from them? When do when do we come up with a system where none of the elected leaders, because they have shown no willingness to follow the law, get a say and that we put it into the hands of the people? Have you heard anything about that yet? No, I imagine that uh, something is brewing. I, there, there's you know some things that you obviously have to do, right? You have to have the crafted legislation and also collect the signatures. So I don't know that it would necessarily end up on the 22 ballot, but you have to imagine that there's some kind of appetite for it, right? Probably a lot of appetite for it, considering you know the I don't remember what the congressional redistricting passed by, but it was something like 68 percent in favor or whatever. Um, if, you know, if memory serves me correct, but um, so yeah, there. I'm I'm sure that process is in the works. It's just kind of in its infancy. And you know, the the proponents might also want to see how this plays out in court. Does does this process that we set up that had these safeguards does it work in the courts? And is there a need to do it, or is this you know um, just kind of another loophole that people have figured uh, out for how to gerrymander? I I don't think anybody will decide this work no matter what the court did because the people that were supposed to do it didn't act in good faith look you got to think about how they look themselves in the mirror they had a job to do the voters spoke very clearly about what they wanted and they have conspired to thwart the will of the people think about your job 
You know, Laura, think about your job. Lisa, think about it. If you if you got home at the end of the day, having thwarted the entire public process and undermined democracy in the state, how would you feel about yourself? Pretty Not bad. No. But I don't think. Yeah, you I don't know like... that I still have a job. Right. But I don't think Cup and Huffman have any kind of conscience. I think they're in the back room clinking glasses going, hey, we did it. That's, but that's so sad because you do have a responsibility to democracy and to your fellow human beings in Ohio, and they've completely failed it. I mean, they really are villains all. Secretary of State, Auditor, Governor, Matt Huffman. I mean, it's just how do they look in the mirror and feel like I've served democracy with what they've done well and it's really part of what makes you know people kind of fed up with politics right because they see things like what's going on right now and that this is what turns people off to politics because they see and it's the same old thing and people are you know they think people are just out for themselves because they see these kinds of actions so i I think that that's that's some of the danger as well is just really kind of shutting people off but don't but when when but when you're talking to your the people in your life don't you want them to look at you as somebody who tries to do the right thing that don't you want to be viewed as a basically a good person these folks can't say they are <laughs> what they've done here is bad 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 and i just don't get it i mean for what for party you put party ahead of people of democracy of everything that's important so you win one for your your little tribe I don't get it, but we'll see what the court does. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Cleveland City Council approve the big taxpayer-funded renovation proposal for Progressive Field? Seth, this is, this is becoming a more interesting story the closer it gets to the deadline because of what we're learning about the exposure taxpayers have in it. Did they, did they adopt it? What's the timeline now that we face for this deal happening? And then let's talk a little bit about what it does to the budget. So they did not adopt it at last night's meeting. They, you know, they're expected to probably have a full council uh, vote next week on the final vote. But yeah, you know, it's it, it's hit some snags. Obviously, people are concerned about sort of the the funding mechanism and how it works. And you see this with really stadium deals kind of all over the place, right? Where um, you know, public dollars are used, and you know, um, I, I think some lawmakers are starting to say, okay, well, we need to worry about what happens if there's a shortfall on the city and in the public dollar, and that comes from the general revenue fund. So now people are kind of looking at, all right, how do we, you know, sort of offset this so that if something does go haywire, um, you know, general fund dollars, and in already in a city that's already stretched pretty thin for dollars, um, you know, don't don't get taken away for what is essentially a luxury. Well, uh, the thing that strikes me about this, and we're going to co- quickly put together a story that looks at it, because I don't think this has ever happened before. In previous stadium deals, for all of them, they identified the sources, the sin tax, the, the hotel tax, the admissions tax, the parking tax, and said that's, that's what pays for this. And it's left Gateway, the, the development corporation that maintains the stadiums, in the lurch a few times because there wasn't enough money. But this seems like the first time they've ever said, yeah, if those aren't adequate, we can reach into the general fund. And the general fund is what picks up the trash and maintains the parks and employs people at the recreation centers. So there is the potential that the city would have to lay off police officers 
to pay for a baseball stadium if this went south. And all you need do is look at last year. They didn't have any ticket or parking taxes for the baseball team because there were no fans in the stadium. It's not something that seems impossible anymore that these taxes could dry up. So what are they thinking exposing basic services to people largely in poverty to pay for a baseball team? Well, this is it, it's really the map and model of professional sports and stadium deals kind of nationwide over really the last decade and a half, maybe you know, even up to two decades. You know, you used to have stadiums that were primarily funded by, um, you know, teams or private equity or something like that. And that's really just no longer the case. You have, you know, these become in, in a way kind of vanity projects, right, where you can kind of hang your hat on it and. So I think what we'll probably see with this, at least it's looking like this from uh, Courtney Astolfi's reporting that, yeah, you know, they're probably going to try to either increase parking to sort of ensure that that's there. But again, you do run into that problem of what happens, what happens in not even say a pandemic year, what happens in a just like a recession year where people are broke and they're not going to ball games like that is you know, also a threat to general revenue fund dollars, again, in the poorest city in the nation. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised that this hasn't had more kind of discussion or even outrage from some people because these stadium deals can be very polarizing because of, you know, how much it really does subsidize, you know, millionaire and billionaire sports owners and sports teams. Well, I, I mean, I feel bad that we haven't emphasized that as much as we should. We're going to try and quickly do that. I am heartened that there are people on city council raising these questions. And, that, you know, I, I, I thought this was going to pass last night. And the fact that it didn't just makes me wonder, is there enough resistance? I mean, all is fine with dedicating parking and emission taxes to the stadium. But once you start dipping into the fund that pays for police officers and garbage collection, for a baseball game? I mean, that is really crossing a line about what is the purpose of government. So hopefully we'll have more discussion on this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Seth, happy travels. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. If you have a question for us, send it to me at cquinn at cleveland.com. C-Q-U-I-N-N at cleveland.com. <laughs>